Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. When everything kind of came to fruition and I was going through a heartbreak, financial stuff, losing friends, also losing this individual who I found out was fraudulent. Yeah, I stayed in bed and just a lot of NyQuil, a lot of weed and whatever else I can get my hands on at that point. And it was just like hoping someone would come save me. And it was just avoiding the world for so long. And then after a couple of weeks, getting out of bed, being like, let's go. And like really turning on my jet engines. And I would tell that story originally as like, you know, there were these J. Cole lyrics from Dollar in a Dream that I heard and it really did kind of amp me up when I heard them. But now I'm also realizing like I was resting. Like, I was just so exhausted emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, that I just needed to rest. And that rest, like once I got up, like I didn't take a break after that. And I really, I remember taking all these and I still have them. I wrote all these quotes and I put them all over my apartment. Like I probably had like 30, 40 of them. And it was just like, if you want a vacation, get a real job. Sleep when you die. It was just like intense ass shit. It was all over my walls. And it was just like, we're going to figure all this shit out. Hello, friends, and welcome back to an extra special episode of The Light Watkins Show, where I interview ordinary folks just like you and me who've taken extraordinary leaps of faith in the direction of their path, their purpose, or what they've identified as their mission. And in doing so, they've been able to positively impact and inspire the lives of many others who've either heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or who've directly benefited from their work. And today, I am in a lovely conversation with hip-hop artist, speaker, designer, filmmaker, creative consultant, and the author of two bestsellers called Unlearn and Things No One Else Can Teach Us. And I'm already predicting that his third book, How to Be Loved, is going to also become a bestseller. His name is Humble the Poet. So Humble grew up in the Rexdale neighborhood of Toronto. He's the son of a cab driver. And as a young person, Humble discovered that he had a knack for rhythm and theatrics. And then as a young adult, he worked as a school teacher while moonlighting as a spoken word performer. He created music. And one day he realized that, hey, spoken word is just rapping without the beat, without the music. So he started doing that. And he began performing at local coffee shops and putting some of his music online, on YouTube. And before long, he became a local celebrity. Then he took a huge leap of faith, leaving his job in teaching, getting into music, because he met this producer who made all these promises. And he ended up being burned by that fake producer. And Humble had to humble himself and move back into his parents' house. He was close to $100,000 in debt. He had anxiety up the wazoo, and he felt victimized. And after being depressed due to his circumstances, Humble decided to go the other way with it. 
Instead of embracing this victim role that he had been playing, he decided to see what would happen if he just owned the entirety of his experience, good and bad. So that's what he did. And he forgave the guy who screwed him over. He started clawing his way out of debt and out of anxiety. And he ended up crowdfunding his first book, Unlearn. He wrote grants to fund his music. And then he began doing shows in exchange for people buying his self-published book. And eventually, Humble got a book deal with a major publisher. And then he started gaining more traction in his music. And now he's got multiple books. He's got music. He's performed all around the world. He's built this worldwide community of what he calls his handsome friends. His most recent book, How to Be Loved, just came out. And it's a practical, accessible book. It's rooted in Humble's own self-discovery process of what it means to love. And in the interview, we, of course, go into Humble's full backstory in detail, but we also spend some time unpacking his relationship with love, no pun intended. We talk about what it means to love. He describes what the enemy of love is and why people find love so complicated and why you shouldn't fall in love with someone's potential and what most of us are doing wrong when it comes to love and much, much more. Humble has been on my personal short list of dream guests for a very long time since I started this podcast, and I'm honored to finally be able to introduce him to you, my audience. So without further ado, let's dive into the life and work of someone who could easily be one of the most interesting people in the world, Humble the Poet. Humble, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. It's an honor. I've been a fan of yours for a while. The first time I actually heard about you, you reached out to me. <laughs> you reached out to me a few years ago. You hit me up on Instagram and just very humbly, I think you sent me a link to some of to Unlearn because it had been published in the US. And I think you were just trying to get some exposure with people who were, I guess, considered influencers and stuff. And, and I went and checked out your stuff. And I was like, oh my God, this is actually really amazing. And started following you and just, yeah, I've been loving everything you do. And every time you release a new book, I'm just even more excited with the offerings that you're putting out in the world. At the time, I was publishing a daily dose of inspiration, daily email. So I felt like there was a lot of alignment in what you were doing and, and what I was doing. So. This is a full circle moment for me in having you on my show, and I'm excited to go deeper into your story and share it with my audience. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So I like to start off in childhood, man. You grew up in this neighborhood. I've never, well, I've been to Toronto a few times, but I've never been to Rexdale before. And I understand that's kind of like hoodish, has some hood tendencies. I don't know. Yeah, where, 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 where I went to school, it is. Yeah. And now, like, like where my, my parents still live there. So where they are now, they, they build new schools. But when I was younger, we had to kind of cross the tracks to go to the other right. side. That's where all the schools were. Yeah. And Rex was like the north, the northwest corner of the city. Right. So Etobicoke. And you yes. come from a, from a sick household, which yeah. for the listener, <laughs> it's, it's not a, I'm not saying a sick as in people were actually sick, but it's actually a heritage it's from Central Asia, from India. What is sick about? Yeah. Sick, S I K H. Yeah. So sick means student. From South Asia, yeah, so Punjab, which is North India, uh, mm -hmm. Northwest India as well, and then uh, half of Pakistan. Punjab, 
Bunj means five, Ab means rivers. So to be Punjabi is to be from the five rivers. Mm-hmm. So that's where my family's from. And then Sikhi is the philosophy that started there probably about 550 years ago, kind of in reaction to what was happening there. You had the, the Mughals who ruled the area, the descendants of Genghis Khan. They ruled the area and they were spreading Islam and the general population were Hindus. And mm-hmm. Sikhi kind of was, was birthed out of rebellion kind of for the, for the conflicts that were happening out of there. And Sikh means student and it's a philosophy much like other Eastern philosophies, kind of cyclical, with the main idea being your your lust, anger, greed, attachment, and ego being the five things that take you furthest away from peace and encouraging self-awareness and meditation and reflection to really address those in your day-to-day life. So when you were a kid, when you were a little coomer running around, were you meditating? Were you active in that tradition? Or were you more of the rebellious type? What was your relationship uh, to all of that? When I was really young, my parents weren't even into it. My parents got into it when I was probably maybe like nine, ten, And then even then, it was a little bit more surface level at that point. And then they started sending me to different kind of spiritual camps, and I got a deeper understanding. So, yeah, so probably by 11, 12, I was learning about meditation. I was learning about the evils of lust, even while I thought girls had cooties. Um, you know, it was, it was, yeah, a lot was put in my head before I could apply it. I remember that and learning the, you know, so when I was really young, it was like teaching you important dates, important names, stuff like that. The same way a Christian might have to learn the apostles' names or when's Jesus's birthday. But then as you get older, you go a little bit deeper in the philosophy and what it really is about. So I got exposed to that. I was still very young when I got exposed to that. So I remember getting exposed to most of this before high school. And, and your mom used to bribe you, right, to memorize some of this stuff? Yeah, so to learn the hymns, because the hymns have different chapters. So she would literally bribe me a dollar per chapter. And then, like, <laughs> the main, the you know, the first hymn in Sikhi is called Japji Saab. And it's it's, uh, it's 40 chapters. And she would bribe me. And then some chapters were, like, eight lines. Some chapters would be, like, 25 lines. So I remember having the whole thing memorized by the age of eight. Were your sisters also memorizing stuff, or is this something that only men do? They memorize the hymns. No, no, no. In Sikhi, there's no kind of differentials between men and women in any Mm -hmm. any context. And and again, as I said, it came out of a reaction to what was happening in the world. So what was happening in the world is you had Islam and Hinduism, which both at this point had been around so long that they established these kind of cultural differences. So how women had to dress back then. In Hindu culture, in that part of the world, if, if a man died, his wife had to jump in the fire. So Sikhi was kind of like reacting to these as being like, you don't have to jump, jump in the fire if your husband dies. You don't have to cover your head. You don't have to cover your face. You don't have to do these things, kind of combating rituals. So originally, mm-hmm. and again, over time, that changed with Sikhi too, because obviously as everything becomes institutionalized, humans come and we mess things up. But um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely cultural double standards between boys and girls growing up in the Punjabi culture, but in Sikhi, there, there really isn't. So my sisters were learning it too. I think I was just being the mama's boy, taking it a lot deeper. Mm-hmm. So you come from an immigrant household. Your dad's a cab driver. Two questions. What was your household's idea of success? And what was your own? Do you remember your own idea of success as a young person? I think the household idea of success was probably like just security. Just mm-hmm. having a stable job 
doing something along those lines. Whereas my idea probably is whatever you saw on TV, you know, getting get into <laughs> hip hop and you start to see like the riches and fame and defining that as success. Mm-hmm. And did your dad share any cab driver wisdom? Do you remember any philosophies or ideologies that he would tell you and your sisters growing up? You still remember no. today? No, he was he was not. He was a, I think the way I describe my dad is he was so smart and you only knew that because he never spoke. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he was he was somebody that never made any attempts to make his to insert his opinion, have his voice heard mm-hmm. when he didn't need to. But there, there was definitely a commitment to education. So, like, he was always, I think that's literally the only thing he ever said to us was just stay in school. Stay in school. I'll always take care of you. And then on top of that, he was always just watching either the news or a documentary. It was always the news or a documentary all the time. That kind of just set a tone. And I think that just, yeah, that was something that until I was an adult and started visiting other people's houses and saw them watching reality shows or junk food TV, I didn't realize how much that impacted me and what I cared about Mm. watching. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, the happinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork. And you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. Yeah. And you, you eventually became an educator, but that wasn't your first path of study. You originally went no. to York. Yeah. I went to York University. I did IT coding, information technology, computer sciences. I did a degree in that. And then the next step was going to be an MBA and then figuring out whatever that is and just finding a job. I think there was a family, a family friend who had done that. He had like done his MBA. And then during your MBA programs, you have, I guess, either internships or something where you work for companies. So he worked for Nike and he worked for Ford. Then I think he ended up working for Ford. So I was like, oh, this is the easiest way to get a job, like get an MBA. So that's what I was looking at. And then teaching crossed my path. And then because I was, I had grown up in these camps, these sick camps, I had not only that I had grown up in them and attended them, as I got older, I used to volunteer at them. So when I was like 16, 17, I would be taking care of the eight-year-olds. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a lot of experience working with kids at that point. So I used that as my volunteer mm-hmm. experience to get into teacher's college and then pursued education. You also got pepper spray when you were around 16 years old for the first time, which, which in your words sort of awoken this, this activism side of you. Is that still something that was happening in the background while you were studying IT and while you were now getting into teaching? That was before, actually. Yes, I was still in high school. It was my last year of high school. I learned about Mumia Abu-Jamal, who is a, an activist out of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And he was part of a group called MOVE. And there was an incident with the police where the police literally dropped a bomb. They were, they were barricaded in a house and the police dropped a bomb. It's interesting. Actually, um, Will Smith talks about it in his book. Mm. It happened around, it happened when he was a kid in the area he lived in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I learned about Mumia Abu Jamal. He was, he was on death. He still is. He's still to this day. He's on death row for allegedly killing a police officer and a lot of funny circumstances around that. And that was the first time I was ever, ever exposed to like social justice mm-hmm. beyond maybe what my people had gone through. And my teacher at the time had told us about a rally that was going to happen outside the American consulate like on a Saturday. And I'd never gone to a rally. I'd never gone to a protest. And then that was the first time I went. And then the first time I went, I got pepper sprayed. I didn't even do anything. Um, <laughs> I, was just, I was just standing in the crowd. Yeah, I remember it's just watching things get tense. And it was like a Saturday outside of a government building that's clearly nobody's there. And you're, you're in a part of the city that's clearly has no, it's like, it's like being in the financial district on a Saturday. Like no one's there. Mm-hmm. So I remember noticing that and being like, this is, how is this a protest? Like nobody's here. And I'm like, maybe that's why it's a protest. Like this is why they're allowing it. And I think there was maybe a few police officers just doing crowd control. And this is Toronto. Like this isn't, this wasn't like a, an intense thing. I think. It was probably a police officer telling someone like, hey, you just have to be on the sidewalk. Like, just please get off the street, something like that. And then somebody's telling the police officer to fuck off. And then the next thing you know, just shit went crazy. And I just remember this game pepper sprayed and just like coughing and my eyes were all fucked up and running. And then I ran away from that. But I remember like that was the beginning. And then I started attending every protest I heard about. There was these massive protests in Toronto where everybody who was protesting, everything showed up. So it'd be like 10,000 people and people would be protesting healthcare, the situation in Palestine back then, the situation in, in, in Sri Lanka with the Tamil Tigers, the situations with, with the Aboriginals. It was just everybody was together and everyone had their sign and everybody was just there. And it was super energetic and cool. And this was like pre-social media. So like you were out there not to take a picture. You were out there because you cared. And then that, you know, then that that really got me into the different type of music, Rage Against the Machine, certain hip hop artists that, that mm-hmm. were already talking about social issues. And then when I got into hip hop and I started making music, almost everything I rapped about in the beginning was exclusively about geopolitical issues. When you were teaching elementary school, were you sort of grooming your kids to think more globally and to think about the ramifications? I, I of- tried. I tried. I remember trying <laughs> and it was very unsuccessful. I remember, what do you guys have over here? What, November 11th, we call it Remembrance Day in, in, Amer- in Canada, where you remember mm-hmm. the veterans and the people who fought in the war. Okay. I think, I don't know if you guys have, I don't know if it's the same as Veterans Day. Mm-hmm. But we have this, and you're supposed to wear like a red poppy, like a red flower to commemorate that. And that's an organization that's called like the Royal Canadian Legion. But the thing is, Canada has a very strong history of Punjabis fighting in their army. 
as well as fighting for the British army. So like Punjabis made it to Canada because they were fighting for the queen in the various world wars and everything. And then this Royal Canadian Legion would make these monies off you buying their flowers and wearing it on the 11th of November. They weren't allowing Punjabis into their halls. Like they wouldn't allow Punjabi veterans in. So I remember explaining this to like the kids and being like, because the kids were told, bring money, buy a flower, wear it, remember those who died for us and all of that shit. And then being like, you know, these people that you give this money to, they wouldn't let Mr. Singh, they wouldn't let Mr. Singh in their building. They won't let me in. And also, you know, another group started a white poppy saying, instead of remembering veterans, let's promote peace. And then like these people tried to stop them from promoting peace. So you say all this stuff and the kids just nod and smile and then they wear the flowers anyways. And it's like, you know, they're young. Like I'm talking about eight-year-olds. So I do remember doing that. I remember having to teach them about pilgrims and natives and being like, look, we learned about the natives. Then we learned about the pilgrims, but we didn't learn about the part in between where the pilgrims just came here without permission. So I would tell them all of that. I don't know how much of it soaked in. And even like coming across students later on, none of them bring that stuff up. They Mm -hmm. just remember my demeanor or how I acted I think that's what it is. You don't remember what people say. You remember how they make you feel. So I think from that standpoint, they don't have much memories about what I was trying to teach them specifically versus the fun they had in the class. Like what that. do you What do you remember many years now removed from that? Like as a takeaway, working with young people, like what lessons stand out to you from that experience? Um, I just remember realizing how much of an empty vessel humans can be. I think that mm-hmm. was a big one. Being like, wow, things that I thought I always knew. At one point, I didn't know. Things that we consider common sense are not common sense. These things were literally taught to us. So I think it made me hyper aware of intellectual pretentiousness. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I enjoy going deep. I enjoy being intellectual. I enjoy that. But I don't. It's difficult because sometimes you're around people who can be like that, but then they think they're better than others who aren't. And like Mm -hmm. cognitive ability is genetic. Like your IQ is genetic. You can't do anything to impact your IQ. So it's mm-hmm. like, there are some people whose cognitive abilities won't be as strong as others. So you can't hold it against them if they don't understand. Add that to the fact of access to education, access to innovation, access to ideas beyond their scope. So when I see people who are often labeled as closed-minded, I think I have a lot more empathy mm-hmm. for their circumstances and realizing mm-hmm. that had they had a different upbringing, different genetics, it would be a whole different experience. So I think for me, that was the big thing, realizing that People don't know what they don't know. And sometimes people will never be able to grasp certain concepts. And that doesn't make you any better than them for that. So I think that was a really big thing. So in all my work, I try my best to, even as I share ideas, never to talk down to my Mm -hmm. audience. It's always always really about sharing it with an enthusiasm. Like I'm sharing my notes instead of me acting like I'm a teacher. Yeah, you've mentioned in hindsight that you weren't the hardest working teacher, but yet you were working as a private tutor after school. And then in the late evening, you would work on your own creative stuff. What came first? Did you go to that spoken word poetry event first and then you started doing that? Or were you already working on your own creative stuff and then you went to the spoken word poetry event that sort of initiated your spoken word phase of life? Oh, I was always, I was, I was working on my creative stuff, probably. I mean, I knew I could write since I was like eight. And even as a kid, I was like making up rap songs in my head. I think 
No, when I went to that first book and word thing, I already had poems. I already had stuff written. Okay. Um, and I remember like even in high school and in, in university, people asking me to write poems in cards for their girlfriends and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I already kind of knew what I was doing. I think that was just the, the first time I ever shared it publicly. Like, right. Showed my face, went in front of a group of people and shared my work. That's what that was. But it was always there. It was always, you know, in addition to me coding and having a, a degree in computer science, it was there. And then even with the kids, I was, I was teaching them. If we were doing, for example, teaching them how to count syllables, that would take rap songs. Because you know, <laughs> every line in a rap song most likely has the same amount of syllables in all right. the right places to teach them rhyme, you know. So as a student teacher, I remember like having all the kids do uh, Nas's I Know I Can and then being like, okay, now everybody take a yellow pencil crayon and let's underline all the verbs. And I want to take a, a red pencil crayon and let's circle the adverbs. Like I would do, I would do stuff like that. And then we would just continually rap the song over and over and over again. So it was always there. But I, I wasn't public until I was like an established teacher. And then that was, and again, and that was just like me and my friends out on the hunt, just mm-hmm. meeting girls. Like we were just going out and about trying to find places to be mm-hmm. and then stumbling into a coffee shop where they had a, a poetry lounge and then being like, yo, you should do, you know, and then my friends knew too, like, you should do some of your stuff. This will work. So right. that's what, that's what it really was. Yeah. Yeah. So one of your primary motivations was just to impress girls in the early days. Yeah. It was, it was literally like, working the job as a teacher was the first time i ever like had an established social life where it's like oh like there's no homework like you you're done you're done school because i'm still at school but like, you don't have homework you don't have like what do people do after work it's my first time as an adult like what do people do after work like they go out and this is like you know and i had a whole friends group of people who were in the same situation some were accountants some were whatever and some were still in school some were in med school some were in law school but it was like People were figuring out like, okay, once you're an adult, you have all this time after, and now you have money, you have access to some money. So yeah, I remember everything like from friends being like, yo, like I joined this yoga class, like this room's full of girls. Let's come over here. Yo, I've been, I've been going to these poetry things. Like everyone was just trying to figure out what to do after work every day, like every single day. And you were at your condo at that time, right? Or were you still living at home? I owned the condo. I bought the condo as a responsible adult and I was renting it out like a really responsible adult, Uh, Mm -hmm. but I was living at home. Okay. So how did that work with girls? Could you bring girls back to your... No, back then it was like cars. <laughs> back then it was just like <laughs> in your car. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like back then it was also like, I think it was it's just very different there. It's really interesting now, now that I think about it. Because like out, out here in LA, it's like the number one question you get asked is like, do you have roommates? Uh-huh. Right? So like it's, I think back then, I think because Toronto has so many children of immigrants, every person of color in Toronto is a child of an immigrant right? right and your financial status isn't the only reason you're st- living at home so like i have friends that have all the money in the world they're still living with their parents because culturally you don't it's viewed as abandoning your family right so there's a lot of, so i think it wasn't as like oh he lives with his parents like it wasn't and and again this is like you're 22 23 versus you know coming out to la you're meeting people who are 18 paying all their bills and doing all of that. It was, yeah, I think in Toronto, it wasn't seen that way mm-hmm. at all. And even when I was there now, when I was there during the pandemic and had a place and everything, everybody, even the people that lived in the city would spend half their week at home. And like going to your parents was seen as like the place where the food was good. And like, 
you can get your laundry done you can do all that type of stuff so it wasn't something i thought about back then but yeah i don't think i knew anybody who lived on their own until they got married so give us a bit of a montage between you going to these coffee shops and performing and then you eventually retiring yourself from teaching to do this full time yeah i think the game changer was when i started filming my performances so i would go to this place called the drake hotel and they had a spoken word kind of community like and it had like a, had their own online forum they had everything and then they would have like you would sign up you would sign up and very much like i guess comedy clubs you sign up and then they pick you and they tell you you're performing and then i remember very quickly realizing that like that process because it'd be a drive it'd be like a 30 minute drive to get into the city because i was living in the outskirts not being able to rely on that process so then i would always just sign up as an amateur so the amateurs people would have a much lower bar for you but i would constantly perform as an amateur i would never sign up and be on the list of the main performers because i realized being an amateur you're guaranteed to perform and then people aren't expecting you to do great things i did that for a while then i started filming it then I, when i started filming it when i started putting it on youtube and this is like early early like the first year second year of youtube everybody would see it and then people started showing up because it, it would be like gone we're saying drake hotel june 3rd 2010. you know what i mean like it would the date where i was you know you weren't we weren't <laughs> thinking the way we think now so then people knew this is where oh this you know we've never seen a guy like this doing this let's go go see him so people started showing up and then i got into music i was i was writing spoken word to like you know different instrumentals trying to use them as like backdrops and then that instantly turns into you know you rapping over a beat and then i started putting out audios so i i learned i think after going to the studio two or three times i learned what equipment to buy somebody sold me their mic and uh, another friend who produced music taught me how to connect everything to my computer and how to use uh what was i using back then pro tools i think i started recording writing and recording music every day and just was the studio expensive like how did you pay for that i had money as i was working as teachers i had money mm -hmm. so i'm working and i have and i live at home so i don't have any expenses uh, okay but it wasn't like it wasn't no i remember i bought the microphone i bought the microphone for 200 mm -hmm. from a guy who had a very nice studio so he had upgraded his equipment sold me his mic for 200 then i bought like a back then you had to get an interface uh, like an inbox interface so that's what you plug your mic into and then that'll plug into the computer i think i paid 200 for that and i think that came with the software and there's more about learning how to do it mm -hmm. and then i would just go and download instrumentals and just rap over i remember dropping music every single day and doing lyrics videos on windows movie not windows movie maker first i was in windows movie maker and that was taking forever and then i got a mac and then i was doing uh lyrics videos on like iMovie Mm -hmm. And literally the same lyrics I typed out, just I would just put them in scroll like credits and they would just scroll and they would line up or they wouldn't. And then again, this was back where it was cool, like mixtapes were okay. You could take someone's beat and rap on it and you wouldn't get a copyright strike. Yeah. And I remember the day, like years, years, and years later, I was in Kenya. It was like 2016. And I remember I was I was in the middle of nowhere. And there was like they called it the Wi-Fi couch. There was a couch at this place. That's the only place Wi-Fi worked. I remember sitting on the couch, turning on my phone and instantly getting like five copyright strikes on my SoundCloud and, and they, they shut down my account. And it was all from like mixtape shit I recorded in like 2008, 2009.
Right. But I would you, just take whatever beats I liked and just you hadn't cleared them. you hadn't cleared any of the, <laughs> any of the <this> no <laughs> I hadn't cleared anything you, you just ripped the beat sometimes you would loop the beat you just get the beat at the end and loop it and this is all like yeah this is like when mixtapes were cool it was like 50 cent era this is Drake you know that when Drake was doing mixtapes this is like when it was okay that stuff's not okay anymore but there was a good time when it happened I was just making music and then you know you started finding other people who were trying to make music and then I connected with this producer who at that point claimed that he had been making music for artists in Japan and Japan had a really good hip hop market. And then he really put a battery in my back in terms of being an artist. And he really wanted me to work more at making things happen. And I think I was gaining traction, whatever that was back then, whether it was having 20,000 people on Facebook or something. And he was like, yo, I got us an opportunity to write music for other people. And it's, I don't know if you watch Atlanta. Do you see the episode about Young White Avatar? It's a newer episode. but Is that from the recent just, season? Yeah, the recent I, season. I haven't finished the recent season yet. Okay. Well, it was the same idea. He pretty much hit me up. because yo, there's like, you know, these like pretty boy white kids that want to rap. We'll write their music for them, mm. you know? And there's so much money in that, mm. you know? And he had brought me paperwork and everything. And I was like, oh my God, I can quit my job off this money. Like, this is more money than I make working as a teacher for two years. So then that's when I quit my job, kicked my tenant out of the place, <laughs> moved in there so I could focus on the music. And then uh, after about a year, I realized that it wasn't happening. This deal wasn't real. His motivations behind lying about the deal to this day, I'll never know. But um, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, like that really started the journey. And then that was probably the end of 2011. A couple questions about that. I think anyone who's like, 40 or above has experienced something like that where you learned that something that was too good to be true was bullshit. When you were first entertaining that offer from this guy for the $120,000 advance, did you feel anything inside that kind of hinted at the fact that this may be too good to be true? Or were people saying to you, this is probably not real and you were ignoring it or you, you genuinely was thinking, this is it. This is my launch. No, I think I was ignoring it. I think when I saw the paperwork in my head, like that was enough. I thought that really made me, and I was also desperate. Like I wasn't, I wasn't in the best financial situation because I wasn't the best mm -hmm. with my money back then. So I think it was kind of like, you believe what you want to believe. Right. And I think we're all guilty of that. We see what we want to see and, and the cognitive dissonance of that. So that's what I wanted. I wanted to believe that I was good enough to make a lot of money doing this. I wanted to believe that this was, was an option. And this was going to get me out of the financial challenges that I was going through. Because this was also like I had, you know, as I said, I was making, you know, I had owned property, but I also like was making investments and like random stocks here, there and stuff like that. You know, you're young trying to figure that stuff out. And the 2008, 2009 hit. So then I got like walloped. So it was like I was in debt from that. So this is me trying to figure out how to get out of debt, me trying to figure out everything. And it was like, it's going to take eight years from your salary to pay off all this debt. And here's mm -hmm. somebody's coming in with this promise of just, and I think he probably heard me say that a lot where I was like, I can't leave my job. Like I need the money. Like I'm, I'm in debt. I can't do this. And also while I was all these years doing the art while having a job and meeting artists who were like full-time and didn't have much going on, like they're working service jobs or they're living paycheck to paycheck, doing whatever else they're doing or gig to gig. I didn't want that life. I didn't want the struggling artist's life. So I was avoiding that. And I think he figured all that out. So he was like, okay, what if I offer this guy a lot of money? It'll make him 
take this route. And I think, I, I don't know if he thought that was going to make me step up my game and then he'd figure out the money later. Who knows? And I mean, it did, in essence, it did end up working out that way. It didn't take, it didn't happen in a year. It took maybe five years, but you know, mm-hmm. it ended up playing it that way. Like if I didn't leave my job and didn't become a super struggling artist, then I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be here today. I mean, to his credit, isn't that kind of the Scooter Braun, was it Justin Bieber that he discovered? Where yeah. he didn't have any connections. He just kind of pitched. I don't know if he, he, he promised Justin a hundred something thousand dollars, but I know that he didn't have as many connections as he kind of made it out and it sort of worked out based on his talent. Yeah, but I think he, yeah, but I think, I think it was with Scooter, he also had like intense hustle and he also yeah. like, worked like. So this guy didn't have, he didn't have intense hustle. No, I think what he had, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what he had going on. And I think I never went too deep into trying to figure it out, but I think there was just a history, even in the family of like, they just weren't above board people. And I think, yeah, I never dug deep into it. And at the end of the day, it didn't matter. Like at that point, once I realized it wasn't real, like I was in like intense survival mode, I had to figure out everything, what was going on, how I was going to pay my bills, how I was going to get out of debt. I really started the journey then. So you you obviously look very different from your average hip hop artist, right? And yeah. I'm curious, were you bought in on your image the entire time? Were you thinking, oh, I need to do different things in order to be embraced by this community? Or how did that whole thing go? And when did Humble the Poet become your stage name? Humble the Poet was my stage name from before all of this. It was even before I, I was putting stuff out there. I think I was in the studio. Humble was the name that I was using when I was doing like online battle raps and stuff like that. Then Humble mm-hmm. Poet came from one of the battles saying like, you know, screw the rappers, screw the MCs, I'm a poet. So that's kind of where it came from. So it was really a, a like a, the name was was kind of throwing it in the face of the people I was, I was battling against. And then when mm-hmm. I was in the studio with a bunch of other rappers, I was like, they were asking me if I had a rap name and I was saying Humble <laughs> the Poet. And then they were all saying that's a stupid name. So I kept it, I kept it out of spite at that point. But um, I think with most rappers in general is that the chip on the shoulder is just, can I rap? And then you, you know, you overdo that. And that's generally the, the undoing. Like I have friends who rap in Toronto right now and they're still trying to impress like Eminem and cannabis. And it's like, that's great, but none of that music is going to pay your bills. And mm-hmm. um I was in the same space. I think the only difference was I was using, I was also using hip hop as an outlet of like expressing messages and things that I care about. And then, I mean, I'm, I'm doing the same now. I was thinking about that very recently, not wanting to play this TikTok game and promote music and stuff like that. I was like, I can just, I can just write about stuff that I care about, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and create a moment and drop it and not worry about what it does anymore. Mm-hmm. And kind of go back to the original reasons I was making music, which is to get out, get out ideas. The original reason I was making music, now that, that, that we've just been talking about it, I was sitting in a room, there was a, a group of like young professionals and they were trying to create this like, you know, how to help the youth. There was a lot of crime in the neighborhood. So we were young professionals from the neighborhood trying to like figure out what to do. And I remember there was like a doctor in the room and he was talking about like the amount of HIV that's going around because a lot of truck drivers were like going down south sleeping with prostitutes, getting HIV and bringing it back to their families. So all these like untold stories that we didn't know were happening in the community. And then somebody had made the comment, like the kids just don't listen. 
And to me being a teacher, I was like, it's not that the kids don't listen, it's that you don't know how to talk to them. So I think hip hop originally was me saying, I know how to talk to young people. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of been what I've always been doing is just trying to find people's either their inner child or speaking to children and communicating that way. And and that's where the music originally came from. That's what mm-hmm. I was trying to do back then. It was never about trying to make hit music or anything. But then, you know, and because back then you don't even think you can. You don't think like full-time artists making money. Like that's not something I could do. You don't know anyone who's done it mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah. And then it kind of manifests itself extremely organically with all these ups and downs. And talk about your rock bottom moment when you were 80,000 in debt and girl broke up with you, et cetera, and how you kind of made your way out of that. And then we'll transition into talking about the book. Yeah. So I don't want to call it rock bottom anymore. Because now I think I have a better understanding that things can always get worse. You know, rock <laughs> bottom is this reassuring idea that like you hit the bottom <laughs> and now you can go up. And I think it was that J.K. Rowling idea of like, you know, it was rock bottom that it uses foundation to build myself up. But now I understand that. No, it can get worse. Stop waiting to hit rock bottom because you won't. You'll just go deeper and deeper and deeper. Yeah, like when everything kind of came to fruition and I was going through heartbreak, financial stuff, losing friends, also losing this individual who I found out was fraudulent. Yeah, I stayed in bed and just a lot of NyQuil, a lot of weed and whatever else I can get my hands on at that point. And it was just like hoping someone would come save me. And it was just avoiding the world for so long. And then after a couple of weeks, getting out of bed, being like, let's go. And like really turning on my jet engines. And I would tell that story originally as like, you know, there were these J. Cole lyrics from Dollar in a Dream that I heard. And it really did kind of amp me up when I heard them. But now I'm also realizing like I was resting. Like I was just so exhausted emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually that I just needed to rest. And that rest, like once I got up, like I didn't take a break after that. And I really, I remember taking all these and I still have them. I wrote all these quotes and I put them all over my apartment. Like I probably had like 30, 40 of them. And it was just like, if you want a vacation, get a real job, sleep when you die. It was just like intense ass shit. It was all over my walls. And I was just like, we're going to figure all this shit out. And then that was kind of like the turning point. And it was like, okay, I don't know how to make money. Then it's like, all right, cool. And stop spending money. All right, let's get rid of this place. Let's get rid of all our expenses. Let's sell all the equipment. Let's do everything. Let's go back home. So I have to move back home with my parents and kind of hit the reset button. Then you start to you get a better understanding of like, okay, like going back home to my parents' house. Yeah, it's, it's extremely embarrassing. But it's like instantly within a month, you're like, I feel so much better because it's like I'm eating quality food and I feel safe. Like I'm sleeping in my childhood bed and I know the neighborhood and my friends are here. And it was, you know, I, I wasn't isolating myself anymore. And we do that a lot. When shit hits the fan, we isolate ourselves and we make our world smaller. Mm-hmm. And I was definitely doing that. You had that depressinogenic thinking. So we just make things worse as bad as they are. And I think changing my environment, getting myself out of that, then it was like just on a daily basis, going for these long bike rides, trying to figure out what can I do. And through that process, just a lot of very tiny breadcrumbs were revealing themselves to me. Started learning about art grants, started applying for all of them, got a bunch of them, used that to chip away at the debt, started getting into merch, selling merch, and seeing that that's how a lot of realizing, oh, artists create music to advertise their products. A good example would be Rihanna. Rihanna doesn't make money off the music. She makes money off Fenty. You only buy Fenty because it's Rihanna's and you only know Rihanna because of the music. So 
I quickly realized that music was a was a marketing tool more than a product. And then for me personally, I had to start writing. So that's when I started writing on Learn. So I probably started writing on Learn maybe 2012, 2013. And that was actually the beginnings of it was a daily blog. Mm-hmm. Just me writing every single day because I couldn't make music that quickly. I didn't have access to all the things I needed to make the music I wanted to make. So mm-hmm. then writing a daily blog and I was doing it on Facebook. And then that took a life of its own, which began the literary arts career. Mm-hmm. Did you attempt to get it published first and then you got rejected or you knew you were going to publish it yourself? No, I had no idea how people got published. And it was my community's idea for me to write a book. I'm like, I don't know how. And then they sent me all the resources in terms of how to build a book, how to self-publish, how to do everything. And then I did a crowdfund saying, well, I don't want to even take this route. Because I understood it would be the, the parallels between the music industry and the book industry, which is they're going to give you a little bit of money, take your ideas for every $1 you make. They're literally making 10 and you're in debt to them. So like, I don't want to be a part of this exploitive situation. Let me go ahead and, and do this by myself. So then I crowdfunded it. And then I ended up with 301, 305 people raising about $26,000. You know, that helped a lot financially. That was like breathing room. And that gave me like a year to work on the book. So I was still living at home. And then on top of that, I finished the book, got the book out, and then I could sell the book on Amazon and then just collect royalties. I just had to advertise the book all the time. And I was, yeah, I think it was three books a week. And then I think I was preaching at like three books a day. People were resonating. Like, and now that, that's when I started crowdfunding live shows. So the, the crowdfunding of the live shows was probably, I want to say 2013 to 2015. And then after that, I went on a world tour with Lily. And then after that, I was like, oh, when somebody else organizes your shit, this is way, way better. And after that, more opportunities just kept following and coming. And then 2016, I'm not sure what I did. I think 2016 is when I started coming out to LA regularly. A bunch of opportunities found me here. I think the American being an influencer, my numbers were good to be an influencer back then. And then the American influencer money was way better than Canadian. So I got some influencer gigs. I think I did something for like Hewlett Packard, Cadbury, a couple of other companies. And then um, I did an Apple commercial in 2017. And then that was, a, that, was a, that was a gang of money. And then I think that's when I was like, okay, I can, I'm okay. Did you have representation or did you negotiate that deal yourself? No, I had no representation. I was just really good friends with my homegirl, Renata. She was Lily's agent at Studio 51 back then, Mm. Studio 71. So she was Lily's digital agent. So she was negotiating deals for Lily back then. And then we were just, we just, we became really close friends. So when they reached out to me, I asked her if she could help me. And then she just like took the reins. And I remember she got me like four times the money that they were offering. And it was just bananas. So you know that positive thought quote, you are the average of the five people you hang out with, your closest friends. You're hanging out with Lily Singh, right? She's obviously, her star is rising. What are you learning from that? What kind of takeaways were you seeing at somebody operating at that level compared to where you were operating? Back then? Yeah, back then. That you can always put your money on work ethic. You can always put your money on somebody who has an intense work ethic. Her work ethic is not human. What's an example of that when you say it's not human? What, what does she do that you think is otherworldly? Like, so I was the kind of guy who's like, I'm going to start work. Like, it's time to get to work. All right, but I, I got to use the bathroom and then get to work. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. And then she would be like, I'm not going to use the bathroom until I finish my work. Interesting. Like yeah. 
Yeah. You guys lived and, together, so you saw all the intimate background. Yeah, moments, right. And it was also, and back then when she was like just on YouTube, she would make her video that day. So she would wake up, figure out what to make, like figure out, I need an idea for my video. Think of the idea, write the idea, film the idea, edit the idea, release <clears> the <throat> idea. So it was like this intense sprint. Um, and it was just, it was endless work on her part. It was endless. And there was also the word efficiency doesn't exist for her. So she's never thinking about the easier way to do something. She's never thinking about the more efficient way. If the first way that comes to her mind, she just, she's not afraid of the long way. Mm. She's not mm. afraid of taking the stairs. She won't even look for the elevator. Like it's, and this is everything. This is not just her work. This was everything. This was like, if we were throwing a dinner party, like it would be so frustrating. Cause you're like, okay, so we're going to cook eight meals and we're going to do, I'm like, is there an easier way to do this? And like, she, these aren't things that she thinks about. She doesn't think about the easier way. She's mm -hmm. like, here's what has to get done and it will all get done. And it always gets done. And so it's just, it's monstrous. And I remember just telling people all the time, I work half as hard as her and I'm still working twice as hard as you. Like, this is not, <laughs> it's not, yeah, her, her work ethic is not aspirational. It's not something that people, I've never to see anybody at her level ever. That was back then. That was back then. Right. That's, yeah. I think, I think now we've all learned and grown up a little bit and realized like, okay, when people say it's not healthy, it's not healthy for a reason. Like <laughs> we're, all, we're, we're, we're all in therapy now. We all realize hyperproductivity is a, is a thing, right. is, a, is a coping mechanism. So I think she has her own unique journey and that, and that, that hyperproductivity is part of that. And she's still, she's still working ridiculously hard all the time, like legitimately all the time. She called me yesterday, asked me, she's like, are you free for the next two hours? I need someone to be on the phone with me while I do X, Y, Z. And I was like, um, no, <laughs> nothing she has is from luck. Mm -hmm. and if anybody of on this planet worked as hard as she did, they would have exactly what she has. Interesting. Yeah, no well, luck. I won't even say, I won't even see talent because her talent is a reflection of the repetition of her work she's a great writer because she wrote a lot everything she's done everything she's doing she's really good at if she has i don't even know what what her natural thing would be maybe the relatability creating mm -hmm. content that's relatable i don't know if you can practice that she helped me realize how avant-garde i am because like she makes stuff that is way more relatable mm -hmm. i don't my stuff's not relatable which is fine but yeah you've also been very public about your anxiety and your love-hate relationship with social media and how you got rid of social media on your phone and use an alarm clock. I don't know if that's still happening, but, and I've seen you, you know, just following you over the years. I think at one point you were like, I'm not going to be on social media past a certain month. <laughs> and then you started your mighty network community. So talk a little bit about that evolution and where are you today with all that? Like, how do you see yourself on that scale of, I guess, what people will consider to be not working very hard to that sort of lily level of unsustainable work ethic i mean i tried to get off social media and then there was a friend who ironically doesn't have social media mm -hmm. who found out about the announcement and was like no you have to stay on <laughs> and, <laughs> what the hell yeah and he's like your work is too important you have to stay on and i always found it ironic that he said that to me because he's not on social media he works for one of these really popular these influencers, he's their like CEO of their company. And he said it to me. So he himself as an individual, his whole life, he does no social media, but he's on social media for work. 
but he doesn't, he doesn't have to exist on it the way someone like we do. So I want to get off because I, I, it was a combination of just being like, this isn't a healthy place to be on, but also recognizing that this isn't even a useful place for what people are trying to accomplish anymore. Like going viral on TikTok doesn't sell a book. It's just, it gets you a bunch of eye, eyeballs and strokes your ego. And back then I already had like wealthy friends hiring TikTok influencers and Instagram influencers to help promote their products and it wasn't working. So I was looking at it from two standpoints. I was like, this isn't, not only is it not good for you, and the reason people stick with it is they say, I need it for my job and blah, blah, blah. So I was realizing it's not even good for your job anymore. So I was like, I'm going to get off this and I'm going to, because I was creating a mailing list years ago and then I fell off and I realized like that was always the best thing to do because people's inboxes are still the most sacred part of their online life. Mm -hmm. And if I provide value in that space, not only are we connected, the main reason people are on social media for business is they just want the world to know they exist. And when they have something to sell, the world knows it exists. And the games you have to play to, to do that. Like, you know, social media is the exact opposite of encouraging individuality. It's what's trending, be a part of it. That's the exact opposite of art. So for me, it was like, these aren't things I want to do. What I ended up doing was I have assistants that we created a system where they just do everything. So mm -hmm. like they'll go into my books highlight my quotes, tweet out my quotes, the most engaging quotes of mine will become Instagram quotes. So we developed a system where I didn't have to be on. And, and I think it was also like the social, the actual social side of it wasn't beneficial to me as well. So it was like, if I was traveling to LA and I was taking an Instagram story of me being on a plane or something like that, five people who I didn't tell I was in the city would get a, you know, like, how come you were in LA? You didn't call me, you know, there's a lot of that, or like, you know, it, to this day, like, even if I, like, I just went to New York, and if I spent a lot of time posting about it, then like people I didn't call, like it, it just, it made things more difficult. I didn't see a lot of upside to it. So I think from that standpoint, I was like, okay, I, I need to not spend as much time on here. And also it just, it does so much to your subconscious, especially when you're trying to be a creative. And for me, a creative means adding to the world. And it's really hard to add to the world when you're just inundated with all this repetitive, what's everyone talking about? What should you care about today? The queen died. Let's care about that today. Oh, then this happened. Oh, this happened. And these aren't things that I think people on a daily basis should be concerned with. When it comes to news, like as Andre 3000 said, like the sports and the weather and, and probably traffic are the only things that people need to care about. Like, and again, I'm, I, and I grew up heavily in geopolitics. Like I, I care about what's happening in the world, but even I understand that on a day to day basis, what's happening in the Middle East isn't going to impact me and I can't kill myself trying to figure that out. So there was a lot of that. And I think for me now, especially with the publishing side of my life, like that's slow art. So I really like that. So releasing a book once every two years is considered fast. You know, they want mm -hmm. you to drop a book every three years. So that's healthy versus constant content. Mm -hmm. and, and the irony of it all is like from now until February, I'm going to turn back into a social media influencer and you're going to see a bunch of you know, I said, yes, <laughs> whatever ideas my assistants had, I said, yes. And it's it's horrible because it's working mm. because that's the worst part. I've done like three TikTok style videos and they've, the engagement has gone up. And the I like them. I've seen like, them. They're good. Yeah. And that's the thing. And people who are new to my story are like mm. giving me advice on social media. And I'm like, listen, it's not that I don't know how to do it. It's that I don't want <laughs> to do it. And I'll ask them. I was like, okay, cool. Let's say I make a, I get a million followers doing this for six months. Then what? Then I what? Have to do it for another, yeah. I do it mm -hmm. for another six months. 
And then also as a business, how much of this actually matters. I was around when YouTube was at its heyday. The eyeballs are a bunch of kids who, who can't buy stuff. You know right. what I mean? Like they can stream, they can stream music, but they can't buy stuff. And it's like I'd rather focus on on, on the communities. And it's not even about who can buy stuff, but it's more like that's how people justify their existence on social media, their businesses. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's like you can have a business without social media. Like there's local businesses everywhere that don't rely on social media to exist. It's just mm-hmm. quality products. And again, it's not like there's a in the book world. You know, you you release work too. It's, like, it's not like there's like a if I had a million dollars, I could pay someone to market my book. That doesn't exist. Right. There is no machine. There literally is no machine. Well, that's also, it's the deal with going through a publisher as well. You know, like you self-published your first book, then you got it published and it became critically acclaimed. And I would yeah, consider but they didn't that. do anything to market the book. Right. Right. Well, it was more of a grassroots organic marketing from your yeah, and. Whereas with the publisher, when your book comes out, your pre-sales, it's, it's, it's contrived. It's like, okay, I have to get out here and tap dance for three months to try to drive up these numbers so I can you know, meet there. Yeah, but even then, it's, you're still just you're feeding the almighty Amazon algorithm. Sure. Like, the reason you're doing the pre-sales is because all the pre-sales count as your first day sales. That's right. Right? So then it tells the Amazon algorithm, this guy sold a bunch of books on day one. And then they rank it higher, and then because they want more money, it's, it's no different than social like than Instagram. Like if you have a video that does really well, they'll make sure more people see the video because their goal is to keep people on the platform. Mm-hmm. Amazon wants to keep people on Amazon. So if you have a book that sold a bunch of copies, then Amazon is going to make more people see your book, and more people are going to buy it, and then your book goes viral. So they're just trying mm-hmm. to—it's just tricking a system, but it's not marketing. There aren't any publishers that are putting up billboards for authors. Right. And I'm learning most of the marketing is actually was actually to bookstores. Like mm-hmm. you're you're paying or they used to you used to pay Barnes and Noble. So when people walk in the store, those first couple of tables, your book was on it. That's what the marketing mm-hmm. dollars were spent on. The same way if somebody has a hit song and they're paying the radio station to play it. Mm-hmm. But the difference was what I learned was like, you know, like I know in music, if you have a song and there's like four or five major cities. They test it out in, and each city costs 250 grand. So if like Nicki Minaj has a song, they'll drop 250 grand in New York and see if it works. If it works, then they'll try 250 in Atlanta. If it works, then they'll open up $3 million and, and blast it across the country. Right. So they tested it and it worked and they blasted it. And I remember my book when I was with the majors and it sold after doing, I think the breakfast club or something, and it sold a whole bunch of copies that they ran out of copies. And then they were like, well, you didn't tell us what you were doing this interview and we weren't ready for it. And I was like, okay, this still sounds like good news, but I was like, okay, can y'all push the button now? Like we've proven that this book sells. And they're like, what button? You know what I mean? And like, there isn't, they don't have that scale. Like, you know, the same, like if a song works in New York, then we try other cities. They don't have that. Right. You know, there's nothing there. So they said the only thing they do is pitch to bookstores. And then again, like the impact of bookstores unfortunately, is getting smaller. So it's really just appeasing this algorithm on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And that's just traffic. It's tricky because you care about the book you wrote, but if nobody knows it exists, what do you do then? How does somebody get on Breakfast Club? That's a great question. I. <laughs> 
my story is very simple. Somebody, somebody, and many people are taking credit, and I'll never know who it was, put my book on Charlemagne's desk. Huh. They put my book on his desk. So when he, he said I read it, he actually meant that. I some you know someone gave me. The book I had I no it. idea who he was. I told you, I knew who he was. He had no idea who I was. Interesting. He read the book and it became like an evangelist for it. Interesting. Then, like, yeah. So there's like interviews him, and he's not even saying my name. He's calling me the humble poet. Back right. Then. And then he has not reached out to me. He's not connected with me. He's posting the book, not tagging me, like not knowing anything. Like he just <laughs> someone gave him the book. That's like, exciting though for you, right? You're seeing it this. was, and then I like commented on the post, like "Thank you so much for reading the book." And then he just commented back, "Awesome, come on the show." And then I'm DMing, being like, "Hey, how do I come on the show?" And then <laughs> no, re no replies. How do I come on the show? Yeah, like you just told me to come on the shows in the comments, but there were no replies. Right, and then he, and he, he didn't reply. I think to this day, I don't even know if he does reply in DMs. To this day, I'm just I'm thinking about it. And then at that point, it was having the screenshot of the invite and then every single human I knew who knew anyone who knew anyone. It took six weeks. Wow. It's like you giving me an invitation to your birthday party and not telling me <laughs> where it is. Right. And now I'm scouring the earth asking who knows light, who knows light. Like, how do we just knowing that if I get to your front door, you'll be like, hey, you made it. That's literally what it was. That's hilarious. That's, that's okay. literally what it was. That book was Unlearned. That was your first book. That's sort of like, yeah. to me, that's kind of like Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. It's like a philosophy book. Your yeah. second book, Things No One Else Can Teach Us, was sort of like your memoir. Because I heard you say in an interview, like you wanted to give context to some of these philosophies and let people know that you didn't just come up with them. You had some pretty difficult situations that you had to overcome. And I feel like How to Be Loved is kind of like a combination of philosophy and, and memoir. Would you agree with that assessment? Yeah. So I think what it was, was unlearned was me taking all my writing, putting it together, calling it a book and mm -hmm. it doing really, really, really well, despite nobody else's enthusiasm towards it from a professional publishing standpoint. Even when I was gaining traction, I started getting offered book deals and I would be like, why don't you guys republish this book that I published independently? It has legs. Like, yes, my book has very sexy legs. Like we just need a bigger trampoline. And they were like, no, no, we, we, we don't publish books that I've already know. Your audience has already read it. So no one else is going to read it. And I was like, no, I'm like, my audience is not a, you know, this book's not doing well because I'm some famous dude who wrote a book. This book mm -hmm. is doing well because it's a good book. My audience is from the book. The book isn't from my audience. So every publisher reached out to me and they wanted me for a new book and they wouldn't publish this old book. So then I ended up saying no to all the publishers. Hmm. Then when a bookstore in Canada asked to republish Unlearn and relicense it and put it in their bookstores, I agreed. And then that's when it became a very strong commercially successful book that made it more of a mainstream thing. And mm -hmm. then I got an agent in the States that renegotiated my deals and then said, he's not going to sign a book deal with you unless you republish Unlearn. And even then, the gap between them publishing Unlearn and the second book was six months. Because mm -hmm. again, everybody thought Unlearn has had its ride. And mm -hmm. I'm like, no, this book is growing. Anybody who opens it will love it. You don't have to know who I am to like this book. And then my previous publishers, they just planned a six months gap between Unlearn. So pretty much as my agent explained, like they, they just wanted a new book from you and they just agreed to take the first one. Mm -hmm. Unlearn still outselling the second one for that purpose. So Unlearn is just this rough, raw, 
non-book that turned into a book that really connects with everybody because I think it was just so authentic and organic. Mm -hmm. And then the second book, Things No One Else Can Teach Us, was me having like some of the best editors in the world saying, okay, we can take you from being this raw piece of talent and refining it. And it was a really interesting process because I think for me, I was like, I'm just going to be like, yep, yeah, I'm going to say yes to everything because they must know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So then the, the formatting of the book, the ideas, and I learned a lot. So they really definitely showed me the difference between being an amateur and a professional in terms of writing and the amount of accountability and scheduling and all of that. So that was there, but I said yes to all their ideas. And that made each chapter definitely longer. And I think what they were trying to say was like, look, you have an idea. So the idea I had pitched them was a, bo- a book about magic moments. So I'm, like, I'm going to tell stories that I consider magical, but they won't be always the most pleasant stories. But I'm going to pull from them the gems and the magic. Mm-hmm. And that turned into things no one else can teach us. And I think that's when they, they would show up and be like, okay, well, we need support an idea with a story. Start with a personal story. Start with this, start with that. So then I learned a lot from them in that standpoint. And then the new book, How to Be Loved, I wrote by myself. So I wrote it without working with a publisher. Because mm-hmm. I said, okay, now I know if I write a book with them and they're, and they're not micromanaging, it's just part of the process. It's kind of yeah. accountability. They're like, okay, well, how, what are we going to work on this month? How much are we going to get done? Send that over. We'll edit that while you work on the next batch. Because of the pandemic, there was space and time. So I'm like, I'm going to write this exactly how I want to write it. And it was a combination of me writing the way I wrote Unlearn, but then me taking all the lessons I learned from them in terms of how to make this much more professional. And then I, I moved with a different publisher. And then I think they definitely understood me very clearly in terms of what I was doing. And a lot of it was this kind of concept of Unlearn was like share a bunch of ideas. And then people thought that I just was like born that way. I just know all this stuff. And it was like, no, I'm, I literally was processing my own shit and then sharing what I learned. And then I realized that things no one else could teach us with here. Let me tell you where this stuff came from. This came from me getting robbed. This came from me getting heartbroken. This came from me doing all this dumb shit. And then, yeah. So then how to be loved was like, okay, now I understand that. It doesn't have to be a four page story before we get to the lesson. The lesson the lesson's the part that I'm interested in, but I have to include something. And, and I figured out how to make the stories a paragraph or two in addition to the love stories that exist in the in the book and half of them aren't about me so talk about the covers the first two books the covers very similar different colors and i know that when you work with a publisher one of the fights you have to take on sometimes is the cover the cover the title and all that and then you had ruben do the cover for the most recent book how to be loved which makes sense i guess if you're in LA and you know his work and all of that. Was that something that you brought to the table or why did you decide to deviate from your brand when it comes to the covers? No, not at all. What it was is I think in my last publishing situation, so for people that don't know how this works, is so you're the author, you're the artist, you have an agent and you have a publisher. And usually your agent's kind of the bridge between you and the publisher. And the publisher's goal here is to make more money than they invested. And with... The previous publishers and, and, and before this, before the publishers, I worked with a retailer, they created the covers and my mindset was, well, they're in this business. They know this better than I do. The original, original unlearn cover I made myself Yep. and I'm proud of it. But if you're a retailer and you work in retail, you, you're going to know what works. If you work at H&M, you're going to know what sells. If you, whatever, you work at Home Depot, you know what works. 
So I was like, this isn't my wheelhouse. Let, let them do it. So with the new publisher, we started having conversations. I'm like, look, whatever works, I just want it to be simple. I want it to be bold. And, and the inspiration of how to be loved, like the title in itself is very, it's just there. You know what I mean? Like it's very, it's a very high concept title. No one's asking, what, the, what is this book about? You know, things no one else can teach us. You're not sure what the book's about. Unlearn, you're not sure what the book's about. How to be loved, like very, my whole thing was like, this is my Kanye West graduation. Like there's not going to be any, any questions about what this is. And this is the most important topic anyone can ever write about. This is it. And I'm not going to code it. I'm not going to be a weirdo artist about it. I'm going to make this work. And we started working on covers. And I started going to Barnes & Noble in the neighborhood, showing them the covers mm. and being like, what do you guys like? And they would give me their opinions. I would show it to friends. I would show it to everybody. Ruben, I met through Lewis Howes when I was hanging out with Lewis Howes, complaining that I didn't have any artist friends. And he connected me with Ruben on that. And then I don't know what happened, but I mentioned that in a meeting with my publishers and my agent was like, wait, that's, that's the love guy. And I was like, yeah, I, mean, I don't think he likes being called the love guy, but he's the love guy. <laughs> um, that's the love guy. And he's like, why don't you get him to do your cover? And then I said, look, I don't want to start that. Because my original, like the first time I hung out with Ruben, our entire conversation was about corporate work and how much it just sucks your soul. <laughs> so I said... <laughs> So the last thing I'm going to do is like, hey, you want to work, you know, you want to work for my publisher? And my previous publisher, there's a lot of issues with like, at one point they wanted a, a photograph of me. And I was like, okay, well, we got to pay the photographer to take the picture. And they didn't want to do that. And I was like, I can't ask for a favor when I'm with the biggest publisher in the world. I can't ask for these things. When you're on the come up, you ask for favors and you're like, I'll get you back when things are better. It's not going to get better than being with the biggest publishers in the world. And they still don't want to pay for a photograph. So I was like, look, I don't want to do this. Because it sounds like it's going to go downhill unless you guys speak to him, negotiate all of the business before I even talk to him. And they agreed. My new publisher, the folks at Hay House, they're, they're wonderful. So they reached out. They negotiated whatever they negotiated. They negotiated whatever they wanted for him. They did the ask, did the offer. He was happy. Once mm -hmm. everyone was happy, then me and him started talking. And it, it was just creative. Yeah, it was a, a lot. And then I, and I had just said to him, I said, listen, I'm not here to tell an artist what to do, but I'm telling you knowing what this world is now this is more of a amazon thumbnail than there's a book on a shelf mm. so when you show me what you have i'm going to shrink it i'm going mm -hmm. to stand far away from the computer and look at it like i'm telling you that now before we begin mm -hmm. i'm like i'm going to serve as a string to your kite mm -hmm. you know i want you to be free i'm not in the business of telling artists how to make art but that's a big one for me and also they have a design team there's probably rules that I don't understand in this game in terms of printing, in terms of whatever. So yeah, we worked on it with those constraints and it ended up being a very painless process. I think mm -hmm. having them settle the business beforehand, having them sort all of that out early, I think was a very important thing. Yeah. So that's kind of what it was. And I think for me, it's interesting. I was talking to Jay about this because Jay has a brilliant cover for his book. And we were just talking about how both reflect our personalities. I'm way more chaos than he is. And his is such a tight, clean, beautiful cover. And then mine's, it looks like chaos. But I mean, that's what people view love. So I think it worked out really well from that concept. Yeah. And his book is also, I think it's about love as well, right? It is about love. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And, you know, I don't want people to miss this, but that conversation you had with Ruben on the front end, can only really happen from many experiences where you didn't have that conversation and you'd end up 
ruining a friendship over some bullshit, some like little tiny stuff. And you have to learn that along the way. Like those, that's yeah, the goal. Even if it's something is you didn't want to get involved in that, it's exactly what that is. And you realize it's like, look, get the business out of the way. Make sure mm-hmm. everyone, you know, and in business is very simple. It's what are you asking for and what are you offering? Mm-hmm. Be as clear as you can with what you're asking for. Be as clear on the front end. On the front end, you have to do it on the front end. You have, yeah, you can't do it. And I learned that from music because it's like, you know, I think a good example would be everybody knows thong song, you know, Mm -hmm. like he finished that song, put it out, and there's a sample in there that he didn't get permission for. Yeah. After the fact, the Ricky Martin sample, right? Yeah. And now, Mm -hmm. you know, Ricky Martin's, whoever wrote the song, it wasn't Ricky Martin, whoever wrote it, somebody else Mm -hmm. wrote it. Yeah. It was another guy who wrote it. Yeah, he has the biggest share in that song now is because they didn't preemptively do it. And yeah, definitely having a very, very talented, but very expensive entertainment lawyer. She really has drilled that in my head of like, Mm. it doesn't matter if your friends 30 years from now, they may wake up and change their mind about how they felt about that. And they'll come after you. Or maybe they marry somebody who puts an idea. Exactly. Their Their wife or their husband changes their mind. Yeah. Or maybe they pass away and their kids are in charge of their estate and then they come after you. You know, like you don't know. She's like, you just get it done quick. And and if you're good friends, that process will be painless. So, and I think now, yeah, and that's what it was. And to Ruben's credit, I mean, he's, he's doing super well. So as I said, I don't even know what their agreement was. I don't know what they asked from him and I don't know what they offered him, but they sorted it all out, which was amazing. And as I said, like, I'm, I'm super lucky to have this publisher. Hey, House is freaking awesome. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know too many authors who are enthusiastic about having the publishers that they have. So mm-hmm. this was a, yeah. And they actually wanted to sign me when I first started, but it didn't work out the first time. So this was meant to be, it was a long time mm-hmm. coming. So you have this big reveal at the end of the book. I'm not going to give it away here, but you basically talk about your realistic relationship with love and so to give the viewer an idea when you say how to be love and then d in parentheses what do you mean by that what do you mean by love i think you know the overall spirit of the book is to unlearn what we think we know about love like that's what humble the poet is Mm -hmm. humble the poet is about helping us unlearn humble the poet's work will always just get you to say oh i never looked at it that way so what i'm doing is i'm taking the topic and i'm trying to figure out why do we look at it the way we look at and how accurate is that and how should we look at it or how could we look at it so the blind spots the misconceptions and i think one of the big ideas around love is that it's complicated everybody says love is very complicated and it's not and trying to figure out why people find it complicated started this journey and i mean again if you read you know you read the first chapter you'll figure out why i even bothered to write the book i was inspired by a failed relationship of my own mm-hmm. but the other thing that i really noticed here especially in the states is and this isn't a criticism, it's an observation, but in the wellness space, people's stories are, I was in a bad place, I got my shit together, and here I am now, and I'm amazing. And Happily ever after, me, yeah. Happily ever after, and pay me, and I'll teach you how to do it. And I'm from the East, and East, we, we, and, and that's linear, that's, that's Christianity. That's mm-hmm. do this, do this, do this, and there's a reward at the end, heaven or hell. Mm-hmm. I'm from the East, everything is cyclical. You know, there's four seasons, and they just keep continuing to repeat. You'll always have a summer, winter, fall, and, and spring. So for me, this book was like, I'm not somebody who figured it all out. I'm in my cycle and I will continue to make mistakes with it. But here are the things that I've been figuring out. And here, here are the lies that we've been told about it. Here's where the lies came from. Here's why you got to go easier on yourself. Here are a few simple ways to view love in a capacity that you haven't thought about before. 
And here's how to take something that is definitely not complicated and make it simple, even though simple doesn't make it easy. And I think that was the big thing. Yeah, that last chapter is me. That last chapter was written the day it was due, inspired by some cheap tequila. <laughs> so it was like an afterthought. You never really planned to put that in the original manuscript. No, because what it was too is like, I finished the book before I even signed a deal with the publisher. Oh, wow. Okay. Right. I wrote this whole book, you know, and then I wrote, the book was supposed to be 60,000. I think the book, 60,000 words. I think the book is 70 something. Mm-hmm. I wrote 140. Oh I wrote God. a lot. I wrote a lot. So the book drops on December 27th. The book hit print September 2022. The edits were approved and finalized June 2022. Mm-hmm. I stopped writing the book August 2021. So there's a, almost a year gap of me not writing and living. And then this book's about to come out. And then just like being flushed with anxiety, being like, what the hell? Like, what have I done for the past year since writing this book? And then just being like, okay, let me see what, you know, we've, and we've gotten rid of so much of it at this point that it seems concise because the other 80,000 words I vomited aren't there. So you don't see how messy it was, the original process. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, let me bring people. Cause after Unlearn, especially because Unlearn has no personal stories, people mm-hmm. just thought I was like a self help guru. And mm-hmm. I was like, the last thing you're going to think in this book is that I'm a love guru. <laughs> like, that's the last thing that you're going to think. So, let me go ahead and write you a very updated story about how I'm feeling and where I'm at right now. And, right. you know, and, and that chapter being called, yeah, the last, the last book I'll ever write was because this process and for anything any creative can relate to this, you squeeze out your sponge. There's nothing left. Right. Yeah. So, and I, then I, also when, it, when the audio book comes out, yeah, that first chapter and that last chapter, it was extremely difficult to read and it, you'll, you'll hear all the emotion. Mm. Yeah, we, we and uh, that. destination addiction. You you kind of started with that, and I think that's so important for people to you know. You gave language to something that we all, especially in the social media era, feel is wanting to be where we're not. What's your relationship yeah. with with that today, as someone who's written the book on it? I try to think backwards a lot. I try to go back to like I think about a, a big piece of money I made and try to reverse engineer how I got there. And this is always a reminder that it wasn't networking. It wasn't meeting the right person. It was connecting with somebody at a party off of something completely unrelated to what was happening or being the only person willing to dance at an event or somebody complimenting my shoes, you know what I mean? And then developing a friendship and that being three years of us just eating lunch and watching movies together before one day they had an idea of like, wait, I can connect you with so-and-so realizing it wasn't being a professional networker or it wasn't anything. And also the quality of the work only getting better from repetitive monotonous practice. So I think for me, it was like, you never know, like your ability to, to read the future is horrific. Your ability to woulda, coulda, shoulda, your past is horrific. Like, oh, had I only done X, Y, Z. Oh, had I only walked down a different alleyway in New York, I wouldn't have been robbed. Oh, had I done, you know what I mean? Like all these, you can't do it. So it's just constant reminders of that. Of you keep trying to manifest a destination that you'll probably hit, and then you don't know how it's going to feel to get there. And then again, being here in LA, especially in those early years, 2015, 2016, 2017, with all these like 
high performing YouTubers, seeing them achieve everything they wanted to and seeing none of them being happy with it. And now having a much clearer understanding of like the anxiety that people carry with the stuff that they do. Mm-hmm. I think it's just a, it's something that I have to remind myself. I still fall into it. I just have to remind myself. You also mentioned in the book that you were experimenting with radical honesty. How's that going? Because you said the book was written a couple of years ago. So yeah, how's that going? And how does that relate to the experience of love? It's definitely for your own relationship with yourself, really good. Again, as I said, being radically honest with yourself is probably more important than anybody else. Understanding tact, understanding how you need to communicate with other people is a whole different story. It's been good. But then I, I also, I'm recognizing the atrophy, like even the simple idea of like me reaching out to people to start promoting this book. I haven't had to do it for three years and I did it before and then I didn't have to do it. And that, that those muscles shrank and I feel super Canadian again, not reaching out to people, not trying to bother people and knowing, you know, I already have my next book in processing in my head, knowing that maybe two, three years from now I have to do it again. So realizing that like what you don't practice starts to shrink again. It's the same thing with the honesty. So at the very least, being completely honest with yourself, calling yourself out on your patterns and your bullshit. Mm-hmm. Final question. How does one know when they are successful in love? I think somebody is successful in love when on a regular basis, their goals and aspirations and desires around love are to share it because they have so much of it. Like their cup is full and they're just looking for places to spill that overflow. So they're authentically living in a world of abundance of love that is self-generated. That is those pathways are created independently. And as I have stories in the book about people connecting with themselves through dance or through doing hard stuff, really seeing themselves as a source of love versus chasing it from the outside. I think that's when someone is extremely successful in love. I have that story about Marquise, the NFL player, not going into the ice, having spoken to him multiple times having conversations with him recorded actually i have i have conversations with him whole skype conversations with him recorded the self-love that he has if you don't have love for yourself you won't see it in him you won't see it you'll misinterpret his actions but he said look i don't need to prove anything how do you know that's not i mean (laughs) that's just not a cop-out versus okay this guy really loves himself so much that he doesn't feel like he needs to prove anything i'm speaking for yourself because you know i think we've all been there I know for me, Ice Bastard, I mean, I saw the video. I I was questioning my eyes. I don't know if I can do that. And then, then you reported something where you were like, you had to do this whole mental gymnastics thing to stay in there for as long as you did. Yeah. But I mean, I think you could easily say to yourself, well, you know, I don't want to prove, I don't want this to be about my ego or whatever. It's just, it's, it's just I, don't, I don't know if there's an answer. I just think it's an interesting. Yeah, I, I think it's also like, what does it matter what other people think? I yeah, that, I think so. That was the first sign. He just didn't care, right? You know? He and genuinely, that, in your assessment, he genuinely didn't care. Well, about, as I said, like in the beginning, even I probably assumed that, like, because you know, there's a group of forty people, everyone's doing mm-hmm. it. He's not. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, nope, I'm not doing that. And I'd seen it before too. I, I had gone to when I was in Poland and uh, Aubrey Markets. We, we were doing some ice stuff, and he's like, oh, I'm not, I'm not doing that today. That's gonna mess up my sleep. And you're like, mm-hmm. and I've seen him do three minutes with his head under ice water. Right. So when he's like, I'm not doing it today, he's not scared. He's choosing not to do it. You right. know, it's, it's like watching an athlete skip a workout. Like they know what they're mm-hmm. doing. So with, with the Marquise, it was just him not doing it, him not caring to explain himself, and then him eventually doing it. Mm. You know, and he and he only ends up doing it because somebody else was too scared to do it. 
And that was after everybody left. So everybody left. And then he, he ends up going in the ice with somebody who was too afraid to do it. So now his motivations had changed. It's not to prove himself to anybody. It was to help somebody else do like it. Like you say, share it. Yeah. So he was sharing it and he did it. And then still the majority of people in that room will never know he did it. Because they weren't there to see it. Wow. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, man, thank you so much for offering those stories to yeah, the man, world. Thank you so much for having I think, me. I think they're going to inspire people for generations, just the whole body of work that you have. And we just really scratched the surface of all the things you've offered over these years, and including your own just personal story, which is inspiring in and of itself. So thank you so much for that. Thanks for agreeing to come on to the podcast. And it's an honor to be able to sit here and, and, and ask you questions and, and hear the answers. And, and hopefully one day we'll get to cross paths in person and I'll get to dap you up <laughs> in person. Well, most definitely. We'll make it happen. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Humble the Poet. His newest book, How to Be Loved, is available everywhere books are sold. Also, make sure to check out his community of handsome friends, which you can find at HumbleThePoet.com and follow Humble the Poet on social media at HumbleThePoet. And of course, I'll put links to everything else that Humble and I discussed in the show notes on my website, which is LightWatkins.com slash show. And if this is your first time listening to The Light Watkins Show, we've got an incredible archives of interviews with many other luminaries who share how they found their path, their purpose, their mission, such as the internet poet sensation Young Pueblo, movie director Ava DuVernay, motivational speaker Ed Milet, Saul Williams, NQ, a lot of spoken word people have been on this podcast. You can also search the interviews by subject matter in case you only want to hear episodes about people who've taken leaps of faith or people who've overcome financial struggles, or people who've navigated health challenges. You can get a list of all of those specific episodes at lightwatkins.com slash show. You can also watch these interviews on YouTube. If you want to put a face to a story, just search Light Watkins Podcast on YouTube, and you'll see the entire playlist. And if you didn't already know, I put the raw, unedited version of each podcast interview in my Happiness Insiders online community. So if you're the type who likes to hear all the mistakes and the false starts and the chit chat at the beginning and at the end of each episode, then you can listen to all of that by joining my online community, which is at thehappinessinsiders.com. And not only are you going to have access to the unedited version of the podcast, but you'll also have access to my 108 day meditation challenge, along with a bunch of other challenges and masterclasses that will help you become the best version of you. And then finally, to help me bring you more of these amazing guests, it would go a long way if you can take 10 seconds to rate the podcast. All you do is glance at your phone, click on the name of the podcast, scroll down past the first few episodes, you'll see a space with five blank stars. And if you like what you heard, tap the star all the way on the right and you've left a five star rating. If you feel inspired to go the extra mile, Leave a review with just one episode that you recommend a new listener should start listening to as an introduction to this podcast. And it could be the episode that had the biggest impact on you personally. So thank you very, very much for that. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you taking a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you so much and have a great day.
you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.